0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears> at <throat> and connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze.
1: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end.
2: guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Laudermilk, the science editor from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: And this is Robert Lamb, science writer from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: And we hope you caught the first part of our series on world-changing experiments, because it was world-changing Yep. and exciting Mm -hmm. and mentioned some good, good stuff. And today we're going to continue with a couple more experiments. Yep,
3: changing the world once more.
2: One experiment at a time.
3: Yeah, so the first one that we're talking about is primordial soup, which does not come in a bowl. Though if it did, it would probably be pretty gross. Yeah. Yeah, and here's why. This boils down to the the theory that uh, at at one point there was no life on Earth. Okay. Is prebiotic. Okay. And you just had the chemicals for life floating around out there. You know, you had uh, especially mm-hmm. proteins and nucleic acids, and these were formed, you know, early in Earth's primordial environment. Okay. Okay. So all the elements are there, right? It just needs to be cooked. So the theory was that uh, that something, say like a strike of lightning or um, or um, or radiation from the sun, sort of you know cooked the thing, set the thing off, got everything rocking, okay. and, uh, and you know was the catalyst for life.
2: Yeah, and a couple of guys, a couple of biochemists in particular, John Haldane and Alexander Oparin, uh, came up with this idea. And what do you know? A few decades later, in 1953. Harold Urey and Stanley Miller obliged and tested their hypothesis. Yeah,
3: and of course, how do you test something like that? Well, you just have to make um, an artificial environment with the with the same uh, uh, you know chemical properties.
2: Right. Basically, they were intent on recreating the early atmosphere of Earth in a carefully controlled closed system. Does that blow your mind for a second? Yeah. Recreating the early atmosphere of Earth?
3: Like it sounds like- In a beaker. It sounds like something from like Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. It's like they've created like the past in a, in a, in a little bubble and they're gonna make life evolve and it's like, uh, Sand Kings or something, you know? It's just
2: so cool and it's so simple. Right, so they, they had a warm flask of water as the ocean.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the water vapor uh, rose up from the water, collected in another chamber. Uh, they introduced hydrogen, methane, ammonia, all this to stimulate an oxygen-free in- uh, atmosphere.
2: Right, and then what do you know? they discharged a couple sparks. Yeah. Representing lightning, of course. They had
3: to wait for lightning to strike the clock tower at the center of town. <laughs> But then they had that run to their experiment.
2: No, network. no, 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 no. No Back to the Future reference. But they no, did a couple just sparks. Just a spark. Just,
3: yeah. a, just a few sparks.
2: Just charged a couple sparks into the mixture of gases. And finally, the condenser cooled the gases into a liquid they collected for analysis.
3: And they opened it up, and there was a whole beaver in there. No, not, <laughs> not a whole beaver, no, but, but organic compounds,
2: right? And that was very exciting. Almost as exciting as a beaver. Yeah, the organic compounds were abundant in the cooled liquid. What did you find in particular that excited Miller a whole bunch?
3: Uh in particular they found amino acids which are a vital component for life as we know it.
2: Right. So Urey and Miller concluded that organic molecules could form in an oxygen-free atmosphere and that the simplest of living things might not be far behind.
3: Yeah, there you go. That's that's world-changing. That's basically like the smoking gun um you know for evolution, if you will.
2: Yeah, it's excellent. It's such a cool experiment. So let's talk about making light.
3: Yeah, this one's really cool. Um, and it's not really making light. Like it's they more measuring light. Yeah, more measuring light. Um, kind of like capturing light. It's kind of almost like, you know, I'm going to grab grab a beam of light and, like, force it to run a whole bunch of laps. And I'm going to watch it, measure what it's doing, and by measuring it, figure out exactly how fast it's going.
2: Right. So light was still a mystery back when the 19th century dawned. And it inspired a couple of fascinating experiments, most notably uh, Thomas Young's double slit experiment. But the one that we're going to talk about had to do with a gentleman by the name of A. A. Michelson, a, physis- a physics instructor uh, who, in 1878, devised an experiment to calculate the speed of light. Yeah, I love f- this. I mean, can you not? This is so cool. Well, it's if also like, kinda- so
3: big. You know, any time there's a so big, big, big experiment, it's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, and it. But it's also it's big. But it also was. Is- Fairly simple, and I think he made it with materials that cost less than ten dollars. I don't know what the equivalent amount would be back then, but he made mm-hmm. it pretty cheaply. And what Michelson did was he proved that light was a finite, measurable quanti- quantity.
3: Yeah, he basically set up a couple of mirrors, um, about a, a in a mile long tube. All right, so so the the light hit one of these mirrors and then then reflected towards the other mirror, and this mirror. Was uh, was rotating.
2: Mm-hmm. When the speed was correctly adjusted, light reflected from the rotating mirror struck a mirror that was in the fixed position, and it returned to strike the next face on the spinning mirror. So, you, do you do you have a picture of that? You have light striking the rotating mirror, then it's going back to the fixed mirror, and then it's going back again to the rotating mirror.
3: Right, and he had an observation screen set up as well, so he could he could measure these things.
2: So according to the University of Chicago, they did a little write-up on this experiment. The time needed for the next phase to rotate into position to reflect the light was the time required for the light to travel the known distance to the stationary mirror. Basically, if you know um, how fast the rotating mirrors are, are rotating, and you know the distance between those two sets of mirrors, then you can figure out the speed of light.
3: Yeah, he set, he set up the situation where math could, uh, could calculate it, and he, he, basically, he came really close, as I
2: recall. Yeah, he came within 200 miles of the actual value. Yeah, so more important, scientists had a better picture of light and a foundation upon which to build the theories of quantum mechanics and relativity.
3: Yeah, with the speed of light. You know, w- without understanding the speed of light, there are so many theories about the universe we wouldn't have. Uh, listen to any of our podcasts that deal with uh, space and, uh, you know, and, and big cosmological issues. And
2: speed of light has a way of coming yeah, up a lot.
3: It does. And so does radiation. Which uh, our next uh, experiment is concerned with, correct?
2: Yeah, let's head to France. Let's head to uh, the Curies. So the year 1897 was a pretty momentous one for Marie Curie. She had a first child with her husband Pierre, also a renowned scientist. And a few weeks later, she went looking for a subject for her doctoral thesis. And what she settled on was uranium rays, which were first described by Henri Becquerel. And so Becquerel had discovered that these rays accidentally because he left uranium salts in a dark room, and when he came back, he found that they had exposed a photographic plate.
3: I love that story. It's so like simple and accidental, you know. Yeah, and he's just leaving uranium lying around the house. That's always that's always good.
2: <laughs> so Marie chose to study these mysterious rays, and she wanted to see if there were other elements uh, that gave off similar emissions.
3: And she found them. Yeah, she uh, she uh, discovered uh, polonium. Which she named, which is named for Poland,
2: her homeland.
3: Yeah, and then she also discovered radium. So those are pretty, and uh, and and also she really narrowed down that that you had radioactive compounds, but it wasn't the compound that was radioactive; it was an element in the compound.
2: Right. Yeah. And so Curie won two Nobel prizes for her work. Quite a gal. Quite a scientist.
3: But let's talk about dogs. This is this is, I think is more exciting, and I think everyone's more or less familiar with this one, if not the actual experiment. Then the cartoon with what it means. Pavlov.
2: Is Wasn't it, there a, ca- a cartoon there? about Pavlov?
3: Like a like uh, the likes of Scooby Doo or something?
2: Uh, no, a cartoon that ran in the Sunday newspaper. That's, yeah, like, like a Marmaduke. <laughs>
3: like a Marmaduke. Um,
2: you know, there's gonna be a Marmaduke movie, by the way. I saw
3: this crazy because I I love the idea of Marmaduke because it's like. It's, it's not really funny and like every, but everyone is the same. It's like, like, oh my God, goodness, the dog's so big. Look how huge that dog is. And it's like the same thing every time. And it's, it's kind of, it's so bad. It's awesome. You know?
2: Yeah. It reminds me of Family Circus where, um, did you ever read Family Circus? Maybe it was before your time. I used to read the comics and there was that one comic that, um, the whole joke was the child was asking what was for dinner and said peschetti and meatballs. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was a joke. Pasketti and meatballs.
3: Then he like, just specifically, or did he like milk that joke for like 20 years like some of these I think guys that do.
2: cartoon was pretty popular. I yeah. think I might have even seen it posted up at my dentist's office. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, back to Pavlov, the Russian-born physiologist and chemist responsible for the uh, salivating dogs experiment.
3: So Pavlov had already noted that the stomach won't start digesting without salivation occurring first.
2: Right. He wasn't actually interested in psychology or behavior. He was interested in the bodily functions, digestion, and blood circulation.
3: Yeah. So he, but the the experiment itself involved feeding dogs.
2: Yeah. It did.
3: And like having a whole bunch of flashing lights and noises going on at the same time. And then you feed them without those noises or the lights, etc. But then you don't feed them, but hit the lights and they start salivating anyway, like they're about to be fed.
2: Right, a conditioned reflex.
3: Yeah. And so it's, it's like, you know, you hear people talking about a, something having a, a Pavlovian effect. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I have a certain ringtone that goes off in the morning that wakes me up. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a, a response. It's like, Oh goodness, I have to get out of bed. So and,
2: if you were to hear that ringtone at other times. Yeah. The day I hear you
3: would like occasionally jump somebody out of your in the office will have that ringtone go shower. off and yeah, my heart jumps and I'm like, Oh my goodness, I just dreamed half my day and I'm not really out of bed yet
2: well the interesting thing that pablo found was that this type of reflex like you're running for the shower when you hear that ringtone mm-hmm. um it dies out if the stimulus is wrong too often so oh. if you hear it in the office too much then you're not you're oh, not okay. gonna have that that
3: urge so so yeah if you so if he pulled this on the dogs too much they'd be like hey i don't actually get fed every time you you sound an air horn you yeah know, so. the
2: canines got smart And Pavlov published his results in 1903. A year later, he won a Nobel Prize in medicine, but it wasn't for his work with conditioning, but rather in recognition of his work on the physiology of digestion through which knowledge on vital aspects of the subject has been transformed and enlarged. That comes to you, compliments of the NobelPrize.org site, which is such an awesome site. Have you been to the Nobel Prize
3: I have. It's pretty cool. It just
2: contains a wealth of information. I just love it. The other
3: great thing about this experiment is that Aside from maybe being a little freaked out by the noise, like, nobody was, like, mean to a dog or a, or any kind of animal, you know? I mean, not really mean, you know? Just kind of messing with them a little. But no more than a, your average dog owner wasn't might do. not like,
2: vivisection.
3: Yeah, like, so many of these animal experiments. It's like, even if for, if it's for a good cause, it's like, you're like, oh, man, you're going to blast another chimp into space. That's great.
2: So, really, he didn't do anything? He, he didn't engage in... Any animal cruelty? I I don't know. Well, the
3: experiment itself is what I'm saying. The experiment itself is uh, not overtly based in animal cruelty, as some experiments definitely are.
2: Right. I guess it depends on your definition of animal cruelty, but...
3: Oh, there's some experiments that are definitely animal cruelty.
2: Well, some might classify this one as.
3: Well, but it's a far cry from, say, cutting a dog's head off and then trying to sew another dog's head onto the stump.
2: Right. Like, that's a little
3: butcherous in, in my mind.
2: There is a disparity between the two. So let's talk about authority figures.
3: Yeah, let's move on to more human cruelty, because (laughs) that's what this uh, this experiment centers around.
2: And Stanley Milgram. This is a pretty famous experiment. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. Yeah, his 1960s obedience experiments. And they're some of the most famous and controversial science experiments. So what did Milgram do?
3: Yeah, so ba- basically, you know, he's sitting around his laboratory and he was thinking, uh, you know, you know what I would like to do? I would like to, uh, to know how far ordinary people will go in delivering painful electric shocks to a <laughs> friend, uh, or just your, know, or peer when commanded to by a scientific authority.
2: Can you imagine? That's his laboratory thought. Yeah. Just sitting there musing upon the, the newspaper's headlines and then his thoughts wander over to,
3: Yeah, or he has like a lab assistant and he's like, how far would this idiot go if I just told him to do it? And, uh, as we find out, pretty far.
2: Yeah. It's kind of disturbing. Right, so this is his experiment. Milligram recruited a couple of volunteers, just ordinary folk, to deliver the shocks. He recruited the actors to be the subjects who would receive the shocks.
3: Yeah, so there's no actual shocking going, no actual shocking going on. They're just pretending to be shocked. And but the the people that are employing the shock don't know it.
2: Here, pretend I just gave you a shock. Ah. Okay, I just I just amped the. I amped well, I,
3: I, Jerry's listening in on the headphones. If I scream into the headphone, I mean into the mic, she's gonna okay. be mad at us.
2: Right. So you have your actors, you have your ordinary residents, and then you have an authority figure of scientists who would remain in the room for the study's duration. Yeah. And the authority figure was the one who began each experiment. They showed the volunteers how to use the the mock shock machine. That's a good name, the mock shock Mm -hmm. machine. The machine allowed the volunteers to deliver up to 450 volts, which uh, was a shock labeled as highly dangerous. What happened next?
3: So next, the scientists told the volunteers that they were testing to see how shocks might improve word association recall, which (laughs) I don't know why they fell for that, because it's kind of like, oh, man, I... Stuck my finger in that light sock, and I'm totally better <laughs> with my vocabulary. Um, so I instructed the volunteers to shock the <laughs> learners, who, again, were actors, uh, for wrong answers, and to raise the voltage as this experiment progressed. Oh, man. Yeah.
2: And so the learners cried out whenever they received a shock, and at about 150 volts, they would demand to be freed. <laughs> well, the scientists, the authority figure, encouraged volunteers to continue delivering the shocks, no matter how agitated the learners became.
3: Yeah, some of the volunteers stopped at about 150 volts, but most kept going until they reached a maximum shock level of a, of a 450. It's crazy. It is crazy. So yeah, the 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 lesson here then is that if a scientific authority figure tells somebody to do something, uh, you can really push them pretty far, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, the power of authority most definitely. A lot of people later called into question the ethics of the experiment, as you might guess mm-hmm. but the results were really fascinating
3: yeah i mean it's often overshadowed by by some of the crueler psychological experiments like the stanford prison experiment definitely think about the stanford prison experiment, and, and the stanford prison experiment. Yeah.
2: didn't they have to call that one off early
3: i forget how that went
2: yeah so we have a ton of really good experiment articles on the site if you want to check them out on the homepage, we have um how, fi- human,
3: how human experimentation works that's a pretty good one
2: yeah we have five crazy government experiments and we also have this one that bill harris wrote on 10 science experiments to change the world
3: and if you want to hear about even more experiments do check out our blog because uh, we're we're always covering experiments there uh because they're constantly doing something fascinating out there in the world of science and uh and we'd like to cover the really snazzy ones
2: yeah and a lot of times we'll cover them on uh, Twitter or Facebook as well if we don't get around to posting on them or written an article.
3: Yeah, that's lab stuff on Twitter and uh, in Facebook you can just you can look up lab stuff or stuff from the science lab and you will find us
2: and of course if any of you guys are listening here in the labs we'd love to hear what you're up to so send us an email at science stuff at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.